podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello, welcome to the Snooker Scene Podcast. I'm Dave Hendon, and I want to start by saying hello, Macedonia. Um, because as I record this, uh, this podcast is a number 15 in the Macedonian Sports Podcast chart. And indeed, talking snooker, our dear friends, Nick and Phil, are 17. So the two podcasts are in the top 20. So I don't know what's happening in Macedonia, other than snooker fans clearly... Uh, enjoy listening to our witterings. Um, so I've never been to Macedonia, but uh, I'm glad that you're listening. And uh, clearly Eurosport, you know, is a, is a big driver of interest across Europe. And it's great that a country such as Macedonia are listening. Of course, we have an Estonian professional now. We have uh, another from Ukraine and, and a lot of countries now producing players and indeed snooker fans. However, I'm sure people are listening to this saying it's all very well saying hello to Macedonia, but you promised us two podcasts a week and you've <laughs> you've already reneged because last week we only had one. And I, I won't lie, I forgot all about it. <laughs> I was at the Championship League enjoying myself and got through about uh, half of Thursday's play and I suddenly thought, oh yeah, I was supposed to do two podcasts, wasn't I? I didn't do uh, two last week um, and I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm owning up to that. If anyone wants to call a vote of confidence, I'll face them down. But uh, hopefully this week there will be... I, I did say it will be sh- a short-lived experiment. Um, maybe it's a little shorter-lived than I was planning. But anyway, hopefully this week I'll remember. <laughs> Imagine Mark Kermode and Simon Mayo saying they'd forgotten to do their podcast. Anyway, uh, Championship League uh, has been very enjoyable as ever. Now, this week, um, as I record this just before the start of the new week, of course, in, in the UK, we're expecting um, excessive heat. I mean, literally ludicrous temperatures. And so... For what is surely the first time in a ranking event, players are going to be allowed to play in shorts, uh, black shorts. Um, they're given the option, because of the heat, they're going to be allowed to play in shorts. So if you have a particular fetish for snooker players' legs, this could be the week for you. <laughs> Free sports and matchroom live. Um, we'll see how many uh, take up the option. Uh, it's going to be hot, apparently, so uh, not ideal. They, they've got air conditioning and they, they've, they've got... Um, Fans, not to human fans, but to fans to cool people down. Uh, it's going to be the referees uh, are wearing t-shirts as well, so we're not shorts. You know, we we not, we can't go too far, but um, you know, obviously it's 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 actually quite dangerous uh, the heat, and uh, hopefully all will be well, and uh, the the aircon will do its job. So this week uh, I'm going to be later on just looking at the top sixteen in the world and sort of making a few predictions suggestions about how they may fare this season um, but there's also some snooker news we should we should look at there's a couple of new tournaments uh, on the horizon which is good news the mixed doubles which is going to be in Milton Keynes just before the British Open so it's the four top uh, male players Ronnie O'Sullivan Neil Robertson Mark Selby and Judd Trump and the four female players on tour Rianne Evans uh, Mick Nutcherat and that's uh, she's asked to be known as that that will be how she's known on the tour a player from Thailand uh, Nurgon Yi of course and uh, Rebecca Kenner. So they'll be the four, and uh, they're going to be drawn about half an hour before play. The pairings will be drawn, so they don't know who's, who's playing with who yet. It's a chance to have a new type of event. It's a chance to um, show people that there are women on tour, but we still have uh, the, the most recognisable players in the game in the event as well. I think it's a really good idea, and here's the, one of the most interesting things about it. There's going to be live coverage on the main ITV channel. So there'll be ITV4, but also on the main ITV channel. It must be 20 years since live snooker was shown on there. The press release didn't make this clear, but basically I, I believe the plan is on Saturday and Sunday afternoon, the live coverage will be on the main ITV channel. 
and then it will transfer to IW4 in the evenings. And that just gives an opportunity for people. There's a lot of people who, we know there are hundreds of channels, but a lot of people still watch the established ones they've always watched. So there's a chance to sort of stumble across it on there. And um, it can only be good for snooker, and maybe down the line that will mean you know more of the other tournaments on, on, on the main ITV channel as well. So I think that will be a nice way to start the British Open week. And, uh, yeah, doubles... You know, it's obviously been around a long time in snooker. We used to have the world doubles, but this is something different. There was a couple of mixed doubles events uh, years gone by um, at the uh, World Masters. There was a, uh, an event won by Steve Davis and Alice Fisher, and there was actually a world mixed doubles championship as well that they won after that. And it did. It came back as part of the women's world championship um, ten years ago as well. But this is different because this is going to be live on TV. It's the first time. That that's happened, and uh, yeah, it should be uh, it should be a really good couple of days. And also in October, the Hong Kong Masters has been confirmed. So this is uh, essentially for the top eight in the world, plus the Hong Kong players, Marco Fu and Ong Yi, um, at the Queen Elizabeth Hall. It's a ten thousand. I'm sure I read it was a ten thousand um, capacity. Now I'm not saying it's going to be full, but it could end up being the biggest live audience snooker's ever had. Uh, the last time it was held five years ago, Neil Robertson beat Ronnie O'Sullivan in the final, and Robertson said that it's the best venue he'd ever played at. Um, I'm a big fan of these invitation events that take the best players in the world to new markets to try and stimulate interest. That's the reason we had ranking events in Thailand and China and all these other places, because we went initially with invitation events and you know showcased the game with the best players in the game. And I'm sure that's going to be a fantastic event. And uh, the good news, as far as I'm aware is that the Hong Kong Masters and indeed the Six Reds World Championship in Bangkok, Thailand in September are going to be live on Eurosport and Discovery Plus. So they'll be across uh, Eurosport and Discovery Plus streaming platform. So that's you know a bonus for, for snooker fans across Europe. You can follow it, follow it on there. And uh, looking forward to, again, it's, uh, different types of events, different formats. The Six Reds, it never sort of took off in a massive way, but it's quite popular in Asia and it's something a bit different. And yeah, it all... All snooker is uh, is all to the good, isn't it? Not so much to the good, and this is a segue, uh, is uh, re- recent disciplinary matters. Now, uh, this week, it's been announced that Matt Selt and Robert Milkins have both, uh, well, been up before the beak, as they used to say. Um, in other words, have uh, been disciplined. Now, uh, Matt Selt, he, uh, he got involved in a kind of online row uh, with... A snooker fan and has been fined £2,000 for various insults that uh, that he, he sent his way. Robert Milkins, £6,000 plus £1,000 costs for his behaviour at Turkish Masters pre-event um, sort of party. It turned into too much of a party for the Milkman, but um, yeah, he listen, on Milkins first of all, I wasn't there. Everyone I've spoken to was there, said he behaved appallingly. And he's held his hands up to that. He was on this podcast a couple of weeks ago. He's never made any excuses. He said, I was in the wrong. He started drinking. It was his birthday. He got out of hand. He had no memory of what happened. Um, and he's apologised profusely. And as he said, actually, when he was on the podcast, he said the first day of the season, the promoter of the Turkish Masters actually messaged him and said, you know, good luck this season. So, you know, they kind of have accepted that. But obviously he did, you know... He did behave badly and he had to be punished. And I think it was right that he was punished. I have to say, I feel... The amount that he's been hit with is, is pretty harsh. Um, if it was up to me, and I'm not on the disciplinary committee, but I would have had him forfeit his prize money, which was three and a half thousand. Um, he's actually, in the end, with the costs as well, been fined double that. 
Um, now, I don't know whether they took into account the fact he then won a tournament where he got 50,000 first prize, because the way things were going for Milkins, if he hadn't won Gibraltar, I don't think he'd be able to pay the fine. Um, I don't think winning a tournament should actually make any difference to the fine. But as I say, I don't know. I'm not saying it is that it just felt a little excessive for someone who had been genuine, genuinely contrite. However, it did happen uh, amongst the dignitaries, the sponsors for the Turkish Masters, and it could have been actually very serious. Um, well, it was serious, but it could have been a lot worse, actually. Um, you know, if that was their, their only involvement with snooker, then and, and the tournament had gone as a result of it, that sort of thing, obviously it would have been very serious. But I do have a little bit of sympathy for him because he was going through a tough time off the table. He has been very contrite about it. Um, but he's going to have to pay up. One thing I will say, though, is that people have been comparing it to the Liang Wenbo, um, who has been, well, suspended for a total of three tournaments for bringing the game into disrepute. But that's a very different case. Liang Wenbo committed a crime in the real world for which he was punished by the courts. Now, you can argue whether that punishment was right or not. That's a, that's a separate argument. Had he done that, had he done what he was um, found guilty of at a snooker tournament, I'm sure he would have been banned from the sport. But he didn't. And what the disciplinary committee had to weigh up was the, say they'd said we're going to ban him for two years, the possible legal uh, repercussions of that, legal action from his side, restraint of trade and all that, it could have got very messy and it could have involved a lot of money. So they've taken the view that, yes, they should punish him, but they're not (laughs) as such punishing him for the specific crime. They're punishing him for the repercussions of that crime and the image of snooker it puts forward. It was a horrible business, what he did terrible um and again you can argue whether the, the court's got it right but that's a whole different issue and, and it's not so it's not directly comparable to milkins milkins did something at a snooker tournament uh matt Seltz, uh, you know i'm sure he will feel that he, he should have just backed away from the phone it's not always easy to do that it's a very distasteful affair that but again you know he's he's been punished and he's gonna have to swallow that down I do feel, though, in the case of Selt, he was found guilty, or that the punishment was put de- uh, sent down to him on the 14th of June. But it only came out last week. Uh, the journalist got hold of the story, however they got hold of it. I saw, I saw it on the Daily Star online. I contacted Will Snooker to say, look, are these details true? Is there a statement? Is there any more information? Because it's, it's out in the public domain. Um, they kind of, well, I didn't hear, really hear much back until the next day when the story about Milkins went online. Um, and then I said, well, we need information on this. You know, these things have happened. The Milkins one was early July. Here's what I think, OK? The disciplinary process should be seen to be open. In other sports, football's one. If someone gets disciplined, a statement is put out that day, and that's it. It's in the public domain. Here, what seems to have happened is these players have been found guilty of these offences, but it's been kind of sat on until someone's found out about it and then it's come into the public domain and eventually statements were made if those journalists hadn't found out about these punishments would they ever have come out you know um i think it needs to be more open i've said this before it's a bit murky too murky you know if if a player is found guilty of something put a statement out everyone will know on that day and then we can all move on um the grand scheme of things these are not the most heinous crimes in the world um in terms of on the table, we've had uh, an interesting start of the Championship League. Success for Chinese players, which has continued into the European Masters qualifiers. Zhang Anders had a maximum. Xiao Gudong had four centuries in a match he won. 
at the Championship League, six of the groups so far have been won by Chinese players. And they're not all the obvious ones either. And it seems to me, and I don't like lumping all the Chinese guys together because it's sort of a bit ignorant in a way. But specifically, what's happened early season actually is relevant. Because a lot of them didn't go back to China after the World Championship because of the certain quarantine rules that are in place there. And also, I'm told flights are really expensive. I mean, you know, five figures to, to, to for a return. So it just seemed like a waste of money. So what have they been doing? Well, they've been practising. They've been practising while British, British players have maybe taken time off. Various academies in Sheffield and, and, the, and the club in Darlington as well. And clearly they're coming into the season match sharp. And it'd be interesting to follow this now for the rest of the season because we also had success last year for Xiaoxing Tong and Fang Zhengyi in the past. Obviously, uh, Ding as well has been very successful. But the most Chinese players who've won tournaments in a single season remains two. Obviously, Ding won five in one season, but different players winning top tournaments. Two is the highest number. Will that go up this year? I get the feeling it might. And a lot of these guys are going to be challenging for titles, I think. Uh, because they're sharp from the off, and there's a lot to be said for that. You know, a lot of the, <laughs> the British players, and, and they're entitled to, but they've they turned up to Leicester for the Championship League, very sort of suntanned, they've clearly been on holiday, and, and why shouldn't they enjoy themselves? But the Chinese contingent, because they've kind of been stuck in Britain, have been practising, and they are ready, I think, to mount uh, a serious challenge. Now, uh, a couple of weeks ago, we had, uh, well, I think it was a week ago, maybe, I can't remember now, it was, uh, yeah, two weeks ago, we had the, <laughs> we had the, uh, my memory is not great, as you probably noticed by the fact I forgot to do a podcast last week, but anyway, we had the fan special, and um, we're still getting a uh, reaction to that, and uh, Alpha Bonzi writes in, a long-time contributor, so I'm glad the podcast is back, and twice a week too, well, <laughs> sometimes, uh, he says, I hope I'm not too late to add a small point to the recent fan specials. Having been to the Masters twice myself, as well as the Crucible, I can only say venues probably have to stop selling alcohol. A couple of people overindulged at the Champion of Champions last year. There was one clearly drunk guy at the UK final, the drunken idiot at Wolverhampton as well as some overexcited spectators at Ali Pali. Well, just on that, Alfie, I mean, Alpha, sorry, um, I personally don't think the majority should be punished for, like you say, a few idiots. Um, it's actually quite important to the venues that they're able to sell alcohol because it's a source of revenue. And most people can have a beer and not behave appallingly. Um, however, I think this, there is some merit in what you're saying. I wouldn't want snooker to become another kind of lads, lads, lads day out. You know, I was I live in Birmingham and yesterday it was the Vitality Blast finals day at Edgebaston and there were a lot of people in the city centre, young men, 20s and 30s, getting ready to go there already drinking you know this was like 10 in the morning they were already drinking and listen i like a drink and i'm not going to be a hypocrite about that but you know one of the great things about snooker it's always been accessible to family audiences to children to women and i would hate for those groups to feel that they didn't want to go to snooker because there were sort of drunken people spoiling it so it comes down to i guess the the um, on-site security to, to deal with people who've had too much to drink. It would be a shame, though, I agree, if this sort of culture took over um, at snooker, because it, it's not that sort of sport, or it shouldn't be. You know, obviously, there's always been a drinking culture in snooker, because it's come from snooker clubs, it's come from a kind of working-class background as well. But in terms of at the tournaments, you know, I, I, I personally, I don't like sitting amongst people who are obnoxiously drunk. Um, that's what pubs are for. <laughs> Uh, anyway, Alpha continues, a couple of small ideas. Instead of the problematic Saudi event, 
For an event in the Middle East, why not revive the Dubai Classic? Various correspondents have had ideas for team events. Why not revive the Nations Cup for three team players? And I agree with your point and your correspondent's point on the Tour Championship and the missed opportunity to turn it into the fourth major. My ideas to help it would be to hold it in the same venue every year, announce that it's permanently to be held in Hull, and put up the prize fund. For an elite event, the 150,000 first prize to me is a little low. It should be 200,000. Well, all these ideas, Alpha, come down to the same thing, which is money. So you say the first prize should be 200,000. Well, they've got to find another 50 grand from somewhere in that case. Um, to hold it permanently in Hull, they would have to do a long-term deal with Hull, which, again, I guess is going to cost money. You say, why not revive the Dubai Classic? Well, who's going to pay for the Dubai Classic? You know, <laughs> that's, that's the bottom line. If you're going to revive a tournament, someone's got to put money into it. Nations Cup, same thing. Um, and I, I wouldn't want... Um, if we're going to have a team event, it's got to be a properly global event. It can't just be an eight-team tournament because that's not a World Cup. Um, it's just another tournament for the sort of British Isles, as they used to be known, uh, countries. Um, I'd like to see a World Cup, at, at, actually, but it's got to be a proper thing. And I think three-person teams is the way forward. I think the, the, the last sort of iteration with the two players... You know, t- two players isn't really a team. It's a doubles uh, pairing. Um, but anyway, yeah, be not, all those events, it would be nice to see come back. And thank you for your correspondence. Uh, Jarrah Warman from Minnesota. Greetings from America. You might remember me as your first American correspondent, but if not, that's okay. Oh, I do, Jarrow, very much. He said, I'm writing to get advice from you. I've been following snooker rather religiously since 2012 and have decided that enough is enough. I went to plan a trip to the UK to watch a snooker tournament in person in 2023. What I'd like to know is, at which tournament would I have the best chance of meeting you and or Mark Selby, my favourite player? You seem to have regular contact with him, so maybe he would like to meet his biggest American fan. Well, Jarrow, um... Mark is a very accessible character, and I'm sure um, we could arrange for you to, to, to say hi to him. Um, he tends to play in most events. Obviously, last season was a bit different because he was dealing with off-table stuff. Um, but, yeah, I mean, if you came, for example, and I'm just making this as an example, to the Welsh Open, um, well, it's in Clandidno, which is not the most accessible <laughs> part of Britain. But, uh, you know, any, basically any regular tournament, you would have the opportunity... Um, to, to meet any of the players um, and obviously if you get tickets to the Crucible then that's you know you, you would experience you know the best experience there is in Stinker but um, do let us know um, there's no particular one event I think would be better than any other to come to um, as I say Mark plays in all of them it depends I guess on if you're going to fly to the UK what's the best venue for transport links so one of the tournaments in a city so for example I mean Edinburgh you could get to you know another flight up from Heathrow or, or, or the train um, so yeah I, I would advise if you're going to come come to a tournament that's in one of the one of the cities obviously the Masters is in London although that's it's not central London it's actually a bit out of the way um, so yeah let us know and uh, and by all means come and say hello I'd love to, to meet uh, to meet you all the all the um, it's interesting you know, any sort of criticism I've ever had has only ever been online. You meet snooker fans at tournaments, they could not be nicer. Um, and very enthusiastic and, and very uh, complimentary, which is which is lovely. Scott Pease. I wanted to write in about match lengths. It seems like the general sentiment is that longer matches are more impressive to win. I decided to look at the actual numbers, at least some of them. The gory details are here. Now, Scott has linked to a document, which I'll come on to in a moment, where he's, he's shown he's working out. 
He said, I looked at the first round matches of normal tournaments, as in normal rules, all 128 players and no seeding through over the past seven years. So I wound up comparing best of sevens, nines and elevens. Just looking at the number of upsets, on average, there is one more top 16 seed upset in best of sevens compared to best of elevens. And three more non-top 16 seeds. Uh, and three more non-top 16 seeds. I also, sorry, I, I, I also attempted to factor in match difficulty via the seedings. This is where things get a bit opinionated. After grouping the matches by match difficulty, there wasn't a consistent pattern to the probability of an upset based on match length. So seed 50 was about as likely to upset seed 20 in a best of 7 as a best of 11. I think that this shows that the psychology of just getting over the line is a major factor in who wins. And so I think it should be seen as just as impressive for a lower-ranked player to upset a single-digit seed in the English Open as the UK Championship. I'm not saying anything about the satisfaction for either players or fans for shorter versus longer matches. I'm also not advocating for shorter or longer matches. I also want to emphasise that these results may not extrapolate either to even shorter, longer matches nor later stages. Well, here's the bottom line. I mean, Scott is here has put together an extraordinary thing. I will put this on Twitter, uh, Scott, because I feel people need to see it. And it shows. I mean, there's graphs. There's there's all sorts of all sorts of information here. Um, upset percentages. Uh, I mean, at least I'm looking through it now. It's, it's, it's a lot of work's gone into this. And uh, but I, I agree with your. I, I thought this anyway. The, the, the issue in snooker is not the length of the match; it's getting over the line. And we've seen players, frankly, twitch up at three each, and they would twitch up at you know sixteen each. It's it's, a, it's about holding yourself together. We saw at the British Open last year the amount of players who had a chance to beat Mark Williams but didn't, because Mark is a great pressure player, and 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 they weren't. And and you know <laughs> that's why ultimately the length of the match. It's not an irrelevance, but the best players will win under any format. We look at Judd Trump, his record in best of, uh, best of sevens is incredible. I mean, he won that Gibraltar Open two years running. Um, and short tournaments are difficult to win because, obviously, if you're vulnerable at some point, you know, there's less time to, to sort of make up for, for your mistakes. So, um, but anyway, this is, this is fantastic work. And uh, I will put it online so that people can, people can see it. Sam Wesley writes... I've been listening to your podcast for a couple of years, definitely since before the start of the pandemic. I always find it to be an entertaining and insightful listen. Thank you, Sam. I first began watching snooker when I was around seven. I'm registered blind, but I do have some perception of colour. I didn't know any of the players or the rules. However, I was fascinated by the different coloured objects zooming around a green background, only to be only to ostensibly disappear into the ether. I was also perplexed by the seemingly random numbers being called out by the referee. Over the subsequent years, I learned about the game, rules, scoring, players, etc. And I'm happy to say, as a 34-year-old, I consider it my favourite form of entertainment. Eurosport, Eurosport player and Discovery Plus have obviously played an integral part in my fandom, enabling me to watch tournaments other than those broadcast by ITV or the BBC. Notice I didn't refer to the latter as the Triple Crown events. <laughs> Let's not scratch at that sore <laughs> again. Right, anyway, he says, I didn't manage... To catch a live maximum until the 2018 China Open, where Ronnie O'Sullivan played Elliot Slesser. I remember my heart almost pounding out of my chest with excitement. Since then, I've seen another nine, including Neil Robertson's excellent contribution against Lazowski at this year's World Championship. That was truly a special moment. Just taking a, a sip of a refreshing beverage, and we'll continue. Uh, it's important to keep. Uh, Hydrated. This is not from Sam. This is, this, is my, this is me talking. Anyway, he continues. I do have a couple of questions with regard to the world ranking system. Firstly, many tournaments feature 
Many ranking tournaments feature top-up players to round out the field. So what actually happens if such a player wins a match or even a tournament? Do they earn the prize money and potentially even qualify for the champion of champions but forgo the accompanying ranking points as he or she is not actually ranked in the first place? Does the one-year list come into this? Well, let's answer that straight away. Um, they definitely earn prize money. And my understanding is they do... They, they get in the champion of champions, yes. They do have the ranking points for the one-year list because there are places, I think it's, it seems to change a lot, but I think it's now four, the top four on the one-year list, so it's just the season's points rather than the two-year points. So, yeah, you can actually get on the tour that way. Um, I'm going to say that's how Michael White got back on. Uh, I may be wrong, and if I am, I'm sure people will correct me, but I think, is that how Michael White got back on? Um, not sure, but anyway... Uh, Secondly, uh, Sam says, for players who have just received a tour card, how is their initial ranking decided? Obviously, they don't have any points, so is it simply done alphabetically? Does the Q-School order and merit play a part? I hope this email isn't too long. I just felt like reaching out. I'm hoping you can clear up the above points for me. It's certainly not too long, Sam, no. Um, the initial ranking, yeah, well, they're on zero points, um, obviously. So, I think initially, yeah, it's, it's just, well, it, it may not even be... Alphabetical, I think it's just kind of random. Um, so you'll be like 120, but that's no different to being 125. Um, obviously the minute the first event starts, if you've earned points, you'll, you'll start to, you'll start going up. Um, so yeah, the, the initial ranking, say, let's say Jensen Kendrick, who's just come on the tour. Uh, well, I, he won't be on the ranking list yet, I, I'm guessing, but, um, well, let me just, let me just look this up. Now, you, some people say, oh, you could have done this before we started, but, uh, I like to be spontaneous. So, okay, well, he's not actually on the official ranking list. Um, uh, let me just check another source. Here we go. Uh, it's not the most thrilling audio, this, but... Uh, so the live scoring has a, has a running ranking list of points that people are earning as the, as the season goes on. So as I scroll down, he's still not on that because <laughs> he actually got beat um, in the European Masters qualifiers. So... I guess, strictly speaking, he doesn't have a ranking until he starts earning earning points. Hopefully that's cleared that up. Uh, Gordon Hughes. I'm happy to see Edinburgh will finally host a snooker tournament for the first time in nearly two decades. I'm toying with the idea of booking tickets and going to the first couple of days, Monday and Tuesday, for the first time since 2007. It will be a good chance to see the fa how the fan experience has improved since then. I would definitely do that, Gordon. I mean, it'll be pretty cheap the uh, first two days. And, you know, if you're around then, why not? He says, I don't have a lot of questions to ask today as of writing since the season's only just started. But there's one big question I do want to ask, which I'm sure will be something a lot of people want to know more about. Why was Thanawat Tirapong Paiboon forbidden from joining the professional tour? The WPBC article about this story just claims there were unresolved issues from back in 2015. But I thought he was cleared of all those charges back then. Why was Thanawat allowed to pay the entry fee to Q School, Asia and Oceana, when WPBC would have likely known all along that he wouldn't be accepted as a member and thus not able to get a tour card. <clears throat> That's a very good question, Gordon. I don't know why he was allowed to enter. The issues from 2015, he was being investigated by the WPBSA and the Gambling Commission. Now, it seems that that investigation was never concluded because he dropped off the tour and I guess they thought, well, <laughs> that's the last we've seen of him sort of thing. Um, but the fact they weren't concluded... The question is a good one. Why was he allowed to enter the Q school? Because obviously if he got through, these issues would come up again. And it seems a bit unfair on him that he kind of was allowed to enter that Q school under false pretenses, uh, presumably paid his money as well, um, with no prospect of getting a tour card. 
Um, so I think in the sort of um, in interests of natural justice, it would be good if that process was kind of speeded up and that investigation was concluded. If there are charges to bring against him, they should be. But equally, if he can just continue his career, having having actually earned the tour card, then that should also happen. I think this sort of state of limbo is not ideal. And, and the ideal situation would have been for him not to have played in the Q school rather than getting through and sort of having false hope. But that was what it was. He was being investigated and the investigation was never concluded. Final email before our big feature this week. Paul Prescott. Do you think Neil Fold's ideas that he sends into you could be some kind of wind-up? Now, Neil sent uh, recently an, a new idea for the rankings, um, having previously sent an idea for doubles... Uh, he also wrote a Scooby-Doo episode about <laughs> about the Crucible Curse. Uh, anyway, Paul says, whether it's about changes to the ranking system, new tournament formats or whatever else, they are all, to some degree, ludicrous. <laughs> Could he and Alan McManus be having bets on how much Neil can get away with before you finally twig you're being had? Glad to hear you'll continue with the podcast. Looking forward to you trying new things, but ending each episode with goodbye-bye. Must never be altered. It's the podca- it, is to the, it is to the podcast what the Crucible is to the World Championships. <laughs> Well, that's quite a claim. Um, I mean, I, 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 you'd have to ask Neil whether these are serious ideas or not. Um, he spent a lot of time over them. I'll, I'll, I'll give him that. But um, as we speak right now, none of them have been actually implemented and there's no prospect of them being either. <laughs> right, we'll, we'll move on to more serious matters. I thought we would uh, sort of preview the new season. I know it started already, but the real big guns are kind of yet to really come into it. Current top 16, um, maybe look at how they may fare this season and also a few players outside the 16 who maybe will have a good run. Uh, I'm going to lump some of these players together, but we're going to start at the top. Uh, number one, Ronnie O'Sullivan, of course, starts the season. The absolute king of snooker, world number one, world champion. Um, and at some point pretty early in the season, probably around December time, the, the documentary is going to be out, which I believe is on Netflix, um, about him following him around last season towards the seventh world title. His favourite at the moment for BBC Sports personality. He seems bigger than ever, actually, Ronnie. Um, it reminded me, actually, I wrote an article uh, for, for Eurosport on the website, I think it was before the Players' Championship, about O'Sullivan and Trump. And my argument was that Judd Trump sort of can't be regarded as the modern star of snooker, while Ronnie O'Sullivan is still around, taking away the light, taking away the attention. And, of course, what happened was they ended up in the world final and O'Sullivan beat him. Um, he's still there. He's been there for decades. He's still there. He's still winning. And there's no reason to suspect that won't continue this season. How many titles he'll win, it's impossible to say. I, I would say it's unlikely to be up in the sort of four, five, six territory. But he's going to come good at some point, I'm sure. He very rarely loses early in tournaments. He's never lost, this is true, he's never lost in the first round of a Home Nations event. He sort of rolls up to those looking not particularly interested, but still far too good to lose early on. And then, of course, if he gets through to the latter stages, he's a threat to, to winning the titles. Um, so which events he'll win, it's, you know, as we sit here in July, it's impossible to say, but I'm sure he's going to feature, um, you know, in the latter stages of tournaments. And that's a problem for everyone else. Um, the other two members of the class of 92 are interesting, though. John Higgins and Mark Williams. Let's let's look at them now. 
Higgins starts at number five. He's unshiftable from that from that top sixteen, and actually the top eight. He just seems to be there for life. He's been in the top sixteen since nineteen ninety five, unbroken. I mean, that's an unprecedented run in the elite bracket. And Mark Williams starts at number seven, and Mark got very close last season um, to actually doing even better than he did. I mean, he won the British Open, but think of the close matches he lost uh, the Masters to Neil Robertson. That was a ludicrous kind of last frame. I mean, it was incredible how he lost that. Uh, there was the, the Players' Championship um, against Ricky Walden. Um, there was the Tour Championship against Ronnie O'Sullivan. That's a match I think he probably should have won of all of them. And then, of course, the World Championship against Trump when he played unbelievable snooker. You know, he had 16 centuries, Mark, without getting to the final. He equaled Hendry's record, Stephen Hendry's record at the Crucible, 16 centuries, but didn't get to the final. If he got to the final, probably would have made, I don't know, another three or something. Um, so both playing at a high level Higgins got to those six finals he won the championship league but the five big finals he lost four in ranking events one in the champion of champions and three were agonisingly close he'd been two up with three to play in two of them he was 9-4 up to Robertson at the tour championship and felt the pressure which just shows if he can feel it anybody can I guess the question for both of them is they, you know, we always compare them to O'Sullivan. O'Sullivan, as I say, is the king. He's at the top. How do they fit in now? How do they? Where Where are their careers at? Um, is Higgins going to continue to go deep in events but not win them? Is Mark Williams going to continue to to get close but not quite get over the line in these matches? Or are they actually going to come back to winning tournaments? And I think personally, the latter is more likely. I think I'd be surprised, certainly, if one of them didn't win something this season, possibly both, because they're just too good. We saw Mark make that clearance the other day against Liam Highfield in the European Masters qualifiers. You just see the quality when it's all on the line, that he can turn it on. He actually did it at the Championship League. He needed to win his last match, and he did, to win the group. John Higgins had a, a, a difficult season in a way, but if you flip it round, a lot of players would have been delighted to be in six finals. And of course, he was in the World Semis as well. Um, he did win that close match with Lazowski in the, in the quarterfinals at the Crucible. So in Sheffield, he was still producing the goods. I think we'll see them definitely challenging, and I think we'll see them winning tournaments. But I, I suppose the question is, if there's another season like the one they just had, Mark won a tournament, but a few near misses along the way, is that actually going to be the pattern now? For the rest of their career, is it going to be that they're not quite, they're not quite going to do what they used to do? We'll see. I would still bat them because I just think they're brilliant players, great champions. They find ways to win. They can win matches when they're not at their best. As I mentioned Williams at the British Open, you know, winning matches where people had chances to beat him and they didn't take them. So I'm fascinated to see how they get on, and I'm sure we will see them challenging once again. Uh, number two is Judd Trump. Uh, People said he didn't have a very good season, um, just gone. But they're comparing it to the seasons he'd had before. So, 2018-19, he won, um, I think it was three ranking events and the Masters. Uh, the following season, he won five ranking events. The following season, he won six. It's very hard to keep going at that level. Last season, he won one, the Turkish Masters. He also won the Champion of Champions, which is a big tournament. And he got to the World Championship final. So, it wasn't the most successful campaign, but... It wasn't that bad. <laughs> it wasn't that bad. And uh, I think he'll be winning tournaments again this season. I think 
he may well win the most actually uh, I wouldn't be surprised by that because I just think he's got that that desire and I'm sure after you know if, if you want to say last season was disappointing I'm sure he'll be determined to bounce back there's no reason to think he won't none at all Neil Robertson who's at number four uh, of course he did win the most last season he won four titles big titles uh, the English Open Masters Players Championship Tour Championship um, he doesn't he doesn't play in everything now, Neil. He, he, he's not in the European Masters. He's not in the Championship League. He's taking his break. But I think when he comes to tournaments now, he's ready. He wants to be there. He's focused. He's just a brilliant player. He's a brilliant, brilliant player. And he's got the ideal game, really. I think if you put all the component parts of it together, the long potting, the, the, the break building, the safety, the concentration, he's, he disappears into the match. He's completely absorbed by it. In some ways, Neil Robertson is the perfect player, I think. And for that reason, and his ho- home life is happy as well, which is important. So for, for all those reasons, why wouldn't he be winning tournaments? There's no reason not to, so I'm sure he will be. But number three, Mark Shelby, this, he's in, in an interesting position because actually on the one-year list, Mark is 22nd. So he's got ground to make up. Obviously, he had a season last year where he didn't win anything, didn't get to any finals, but there was a lot happening off table, which he's been working on. Uh, I spoke to him at the Championship League and um, thought that was obviously private conversation, but I won't mind me saying that he said he's kept up the sessions that he's been having with, with the councillor and he's in a good place. And just, just talking to him, he seems in a good place and hopefully that will feed back into his snooker. Um, he actually played well in the Championship League, although he didn't win the group. Ben Wollaston beat him in the last match. But I guess it, it's not that he's got a point to prove, but he, he will want to obviously get back to winning ways and, and it's almost like it's almost like last season didn't happen for him it just like almost like having a season off I think and now it's about getting back to work rolling up your sleeves if Mark Selby's playing well he will challenge anybody and surely at some point during the season he's going to come good because he, he, he's frankly too good not to but the fact is there's only so many tournaments they can't all win them and of course there are challenges from all sorts of parts of the uh, the ranking list now and in particular, in the top 16, there are two... I know I said I, I didn't want to lump them together, but I, I'm going to lump these two together because I think they're two sides of a, of a different coin. Xiaoxing Tong and Yang Mingtao, the two young Chinese players. Um, different types of players. Xiao is a very attacking player. Um, audacious potter, one, one of the great potters in the game. Yang Mingtao can score heavily. He can also play very good safety. I mean, he beat Selby at the Crucible, nearly beat Mark Williams... Um, he just seems to have a great sort of attitude to the game. He, he surprises you sometimes with his shot selection. He can't always predict what he's going to do. Um, he's got that sort of dead pandemino, which I actually really like. And those two are going to be an increasing threat. Of course, Zhao is starting in a different position to last season where he hadn't won a tournament. He was regarded as a rising star. Now he's arrived. He's world number six. And so a lot's expected of him. And people will be following his results very closely. Um, Yang Bingtao's 15 in the world I suspect he'll be higher than that when the season ends I think these two could have a very good season I know I seem to be saying about everybody <laughs> but they they have a good attitude those two um, and youth's on their side and they're creating a reputation in the sport that other players think they're dangerous you don't want to play those two for different reasons I've already outlined their different approaches it will be, it'll be interesting though with all this kind of expectation on them whether they can actually deliver the goods. I know Neil Folds, we did these predictions for World Snooker Tour website and he predicted Yan Bingtao would be the star player of the season. That's quite a big call to make. That means he's got to win big tournaments. 
and he's capable of doing that. He's won the Masters before, the Regan Masters as well. Um, so, yeah, I mentioned that the, the Chinese players who have been collectively working hard pre-season. These two are the star names now, obviously with Ding, because Ding's always going to be a star. Um, can they deliver? That's one of the fascinating sort of stories of the season. Uh, just rounding off the top eight, Kyron Wilson. Now, Kyron, um, I don't think anybody would doubt the quality in, in his game, but I suppose last season was disappointing because he didn't win a tournament. And he stuck on four ranking events. Now, that's that's plenty for a, you know compared to a lot of players. But for a top player, he's in that position where he wants to be taking home the silverware, obviously. Um, and he's come close at various points. I mean, he, I thought he played brilliantly in the UK Championship. He beat Ronnie O'Sullivan. He lost to Luca Brussel, who produced one of the finest individual displays in any event or season to beat him in that in that match. Um, but, you know, he's in that position where he's sort of knocking on the door. The door's not quite opening for him, is it? You know, he's not quite racking up the titles. Now, as I say, there's only so many that you can win each year. Um, it's not for me to say what he could change. I know he looked at his queue um, and sort of made changes there. Um, there's nothing wrong with his mindset. I don't think there's anything wrong with his work rate. So it may be that if he can win a tournament early on, that will be you know the start of the sort of dominoes falling and he'll win more. But I don't think Kyron Wilson wants to be Mr. Consistent. You know, he's in the top eight and he's kind of safe there. He wants to win tournaments. So it's kind of a big season, I think, for him. If he can land something big along the way, confidence is restored. But if he ends it without any more silverware, then that's two years in a row. And then it starts to become, well, maybe a bit of an issue for him. Um, so, yeah, be following that with interest. Jack Lazowski, 10. I have tipped him to win a tournament this season, and I, and I kind of have shied away from that in the past because no one's guaranteed. But I, I think we saw at the Crucible a definite change in attitude, um, some steel, actually. That match with Robertson, he went toe-to-toe with him. He didn't play it feeling he was inferior. And I think some of the finals he's been in, he's given the impression that he feels is inferior, which he can't afford to feel. Now, of course, he's played great players in those finals. Neil Robertson, Mark Selby, Judd Trump are the three players he's played. So they're all world champions. They're all multi-champions. But you've got to feel that you're, you have the right to be there. And I think against Robertson, he did. And he beat him. And he very nearly beat Higgins. And then he would have been in the semis of the World Championship. Now, if he can take that mindset into this season, again, the chances are there for success. Um, there's no doubt in his talent. If he wins an event, it'll be one of the most popular wins ever because so many people enjoy watching him and, and sort of root for him. So can he take it forward? Is it his highest ever position at 10 as the season starts? So kind of every chance. Now I'm going to lump a few players in together here. So I'm going to lump in Sean Murphy, Barry Hawkins, Stuart Bingham, Mark Allen from the top 16 and actually Steve Maguire from just outside because they're all quite similar players. I think Murphy, you could argue, shouldn't be in this list because he is uh, a little above the others in terms of title wins. But they're all... They've all won multiple ranking events. Um, I think Hawkins is at three, Bingham six, Allen six, I think Maguire six. Um, so they've all, and Murphy, as I say, out in front on nine. They've all won plenty of titles along the way, but they're all kind of late thirties to mid forties. They're in that bracket where you could argue that collectively their best years are behind them. For example, is Steve Maguire going to win another six ranking events from here? Is Stuart Bingham? Probably not, you would say. They might win more. They might win two or three more. But are they going to win as ma- as many now in their 40s as they did when they were younger? 
seems unlikely. So I guess the question is, how long can they stay around at the top level? Consistency will get you so far. But top 16, increasingly, it's about players who actually win tournaments or certainly get to finals. I mean, Hawkins, you know, was in a couple of big finals last season, albeit the Masters didn't carry ranking points, but the Players' Championship did. Um, Mark Allen won a tournament, of course, in Northern Ireland. Sean had a, a disappointing season in as much as his health was, a, was an issue, I think, at times. Um, and as I say, you could argue he shouldn't be in this bracket because he is a triple crown winner, after all. Um, but he's of that age where, again, he's won nine ranking events. Will he win another nine from here? You would have to say probably not. I think he might still win more, but another nine. So what I'm saying is that they've reached a certain position in their careers where you could argue their best days are behind them. Now, you could argue that about Ronnie O'Sullivan. Is he going to win another seven world titles from here? Almost certainly not. But it's slightly different because he's operating still at the very highest level. He is still actually winning those tournaments. So these guys, it's about, I guess, trying to find some inspiration in a tournament. Um, if any of them can win one tournament a year, that's good because these events are tough to win. But are they a little group that maybe, maybe are sort of heading out of the top 16? Hawkins is 11, Bingham 13, Allen 14. Maguire, of course, at the moment is outside the 16. He's at 24. Sean Murphy at 9. Um, but... You know, already at the end of the season, he's got the World Championship points coming off. So that little group, you know, the late 30s, early 40s to mid 40s group, be interesting to see how long they can kind of stay at the top level, particularly with some of the younger Chinese players coming through and just the general threat on the tour from the other players. And till we conclude this with two other players, Luca Brussel and Anti McGill. Brussel is 12. Um, obviously, a lot of that work was down to winning the Scottish Open just after he was in the UK Championship final. He's a bit of a streaky player, Luca Purcell, clearly very talented. Um, his form seemed to disappear a little bit after that great couple of weeks. Um, and that maybe is a concern. He got to the Crucible, lost again in the first round. Never won there. and Never won a match there, that is. So I guess for him it's about finding a certain consistency, not just coming good now and again. Because, of course, he's in the 16 before won a tournament and then sort of disappeared <laughs> for a couple of years. And Anthony McGill, I, th I think, um, you know, everyone recognises his talent. But again, he's very inconsistent, it seems. And he's 16. He's, he, he's a player who almost seems destined in some ways to be in that lower half of the 16. How does he transition to the top half? We well, only do that by winning tournaments and, and more than one. And whether he has that kind of... Um, multi-champion air to him we'll see he's still got time on his side a little bit I think um, but you know you've only, he's only got to slip up a little bit and he'll be out of 16 and of course there's a massive advantage to being in the top 16 for the UK Championship because they get, their matches are being put through to the last 32 now in the new system and obviously just after that is the Masters um, and then the World Championship seeding as well so it's actually quite important to be in that in that group the truth is, there's more than 16 top 16 players, aren't there? I mean, you look down the list just after them, Hussein Vafai, who just made a maximum in the European Masters qualifiers, Ricky Walden had a great season, Dave Gilbert, Ali Carter, you've got Zhou Yu Long, Joe Perry, you know, Martin Gould, all the way down to Ding Junhui, Gary Wilson's 33 in the world, Graham Dot 35. These are terrific players. So the, the, the race to get in the 16 is higher than ever, and this is something that's definitely changed. You look at the ranking list now, 
the so-called middle rankers, 33 to 64. These are properly terrific players. Any of those players could come through and win a tournament. They could give any top player a proper match. You know, the world number... Okay, I I tip Chris Wakelin, okay, to be maybe a surprise package, maybe go a long way in a tournament. He's 43 in the world. Now, the world number 43 now, he's a far better player than the world number 43, you know, 30 years ago. Um, And I say that, I'm I'm actually going to look to see who that was, if I can find the ranking list. Um, It's no, I'm not uh, insulting anyone from those times, but the fact is, the players now are better. Down the list, the strength in depth um, is far better. Well, I've got the oh yeah, now I've got the ranking list here. Let's have a look at this. Uh, oh, uh, it sort of runs out at 32, so that doesn't tell us anything. But um, uh, th- th- okay, so well, let's okay. I'll tell you the players just outside the top 16 in. 92-93 season. So we had Mike Allett, Dino Kane, Dean Reynolds, Tony Knowles, Ken Doherty, Tony Jones, Joe Johnson, Tony Drago, Peter Francisco, Doug Mountjoy, Mark Bennett, Silvino Francisco, Eddie Charlton, Danny Fowler, Mark Johnson, Allen, David Rowe. Some terrific players in there. Some on their way out. Um, Joe Johnson was going down the list, Eddie Charlton. And uh, some on the way up. People like Ken Doherty, obviously, uh, very much on the way up. But... Um, I think they're better now, aren't they? Overall, I mean, you look at the, the rate of scoring and just the, the general standard of play. Um, so any player from that sort of bracket, you know, you could see coming through and, and causing trouble. Um, but as I say, there's only so many tournaments. There's only so many tournaments and there's only so many winners. And some of the people I mentioned are going to miss out. Um, the fun for us, I guess, as snooker fans, is uh, is finding out exactly how it's all gonna all gonna pan out. And of course, there'll be people I haven't mentioned <laughs> who will do well. I mean, I don't think anyone last season would have tipped Fang Zheng Yi to win a ranking event. Possibly not Joe Perry. You know, he hadn't really done anything. Robert Milkins wasn't doing anything. But you know, anyone like we saw with Jordan Brown the year before, anyone can sort of be inspired. And that's why ultimately a player like John Higgins, who's one of the greatest of all time. You know, he ends the season not winning a ranking event. Kyron Wilson ended the season not winning a ranking event. Sean Murphy didn't win one. All these terrific players didn't win tournaments because there's only so many to go around. And it's about finding a consistent level throughout the week, improving as you go on throughout the week. And then in the final, importantly, if you get that far, holding your nerve. And that's what it's all about. But anyway, the the first uh, obviously Championship League continues. So we'll have our first winner on July the 29th this season. European Masters just after that, and uh, then all the tournaments to follow. The Gibraltar Open seems to have disappeared from the tournament calendar. Nothing's been said about that, so it seems it's gone. There was talk about another event possibly replacing it, but no sign of that yet. Um, We still have, of course, the the problem with the Chinese events. Uh, We're going to Hong Kong, but no sign of heading back to China this season. There's no sign of any tournaments, um, and that's a great shame, but... uh, it's out of World Snooker Tour's hands. And, you know, we just have to wait and hope that things turn around. That's it for this week. Well, for the first edition, hopefully there will be a second one if I remember to do it. We're proud members of the Sports Social Network. In the meantime, check out their other podcasts. You can email us at snookerscenepodcast at mail.com. Snookerscenepodcast at mail.com. Uh, I'm heading off to the heat of the Championship League. Uh, I will be wearing shorts, but there's no dress code in the commentary box. Um... But, uh, yeah, you may see some players playing in shorts. That's the exciting uh, development this week. Stay safe. Uh, Hopefully I'll see you Thursday. (laughs)
But for the meantime, as we always say, goodbye-bye. Sports Social Podcast Network.